All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. This is the very first episode of the Ginsburg Tapes. I'm so excited to dive into Ginsburg's first argument before the Supreme Court in Frontiero versus Richardson, which she argued when she was 39 years old and on the cusp of making an indelible impact on our country's history. But before we get started, here's a bit of background on this project. There's a ton of pop culture out there right now about RBG. I've got the shirt, I've got the mug, I've seen the documentary, but I think this podcast is gonna be different. Rather than painting a broad brush over Ruth Bader Ginsburg's life, including her time on the bench, we're gonna take a historical and legal deep dive into six cases that Ginsburg argued before the Supreme Court in the 1970s. In this episode and in the next five episodes, we're gonna explore history, gender equality, constitutional change, and effective oral advocacy. In each episode, I'll play Ginsburg's oral argument. And every couple minutes, I'll press pause and provide some historical and legal context so that we can dive deep and really understand what's happening. My goal is for this to be valuable and interesting for anyone interested in the Supreme Court, lawyers and law students and non-lawyers alike. This is a time when so many of us are focused on the power of the Supreme Court and the future of gender equality. And my thought is that by exploring the past, we can hopefully better understand the future. I think this deep dive will also give us an opportunity to explore the nuts and bolts of constitutional change. I'm going to break down Ginsburg and the ACLU Women's Rights Project's strategy in seeking constitutional change. And I think that through this case study, we can learn lessons that will be broadly applicable, not just to lawyers, but also policy specialists, advocates, and citizens interested in understanding and even changing constitutional law. I think what's going to make this really exciting for history nerds like myself is that these recordings are treasure troves of history. They're portals into a different world. They allow you to travel back in time and to be a fly on the wall of the Supreme Court in the 1970s. You'll hear from liberal icons like Justice Thurgood Marshall and Justice Brennan, and conservative leaders like Chief Justice Berger and then-Justice Rehnquist as they grapple out loud about what the Constitution means. And through these tapes, we can also explore what makes an effective oral advocate. And for the uninitiated among us, what is an oral advocate? What's an oral argument? So I think that when most people think about lawyers, they think about the trial court. They think about jury trials, about witnesses, about courtroom dramas. And appellate courts are different. When a case is on appeal, the facts are frozen in the record. And figuring out what happened, who done it, is largely over. An appellate court is generally deciding an issue of law and deciding how that law should be interpreted for a state, a group of states, or in the case of the Supreme Court, for the entire country. Trial lawyers are like those cool guys on suits, or Elle Woods catching a witness in a lie on the stand because of her knowledge of hair care, or Atticus Finch defending the innocent Tom Robinson. And appellate lawyers are like kind of no movies really because they spend most of their time on Westlaw doing legal research. But arguably, the most glamorous, prestigious, and exciting thing an appellate lawyer can do is stand up and give an oral argument before the Supreme Court. So what happens when the Supreme Court takes an appeal? First, the court receives a whole bunch of written briefs presenting their arguments about a legal issue. And then the court invites lawyers for the parties to come before them and to orally present their arguments. This gives the justices an opportunity to ask questions. And sometimes the justices will preview the way that they're thinking about a case. And all of us nerdy appellate lawyers like to read the tea leaves and try to figure out how the Supreme Court is leaning. So we'll be listening to Ruth Bader Ginsburg's oral arguments as she's coming up in her career as a lawyer. I learned so much along the way, not only about oral advocacy and constitutional law, but also about the power of one person, of one lawyer, to harness the justice system to make small, iterative changes that ultimately led to a better and more equal country. Okay, so before we dive into Ginsburg's first argument, I'm going to provide a very brief overview of what this case is all about and where Ginsburg is in her career at this point. This case started when a couple named Sharon and Joseph Frontiero brought a lawsuit, and they're challenging this totally insane federal law. The law provided that the wives of military service members automatically became dependents that were entitled to certain benefits, but that the husbands of female military service members could not receive the same benefits unless they proved to the government, actually made an affirmative showing to the government, 
that they were dependent on their wives for over one half of their support. Sharon Frontiero is a lieutenant in the U.S. Air Force, and she sought dependence benefits for her husband, but her request was denied. Obviously, if the gender roles had been reversed, though, the non-military spouse, the, the wife, would have received those benefits. Ginsburg is arguing on behalf of the ACLU Women's Rights Project as an amicus party, and it was a circuitous route that brought her to this moment in her life. Ginsburg started at Harvard Law School in 1956, where she was one of only nine women in the class. Harvard Law had admitted their first woman only six years earlier, in 1950. The dean of the law school at the time was Erwin Griswold, who famously held the dinner where he made each female student explain why she took the spot of a man. We'll hear more from Griswold on the podcast because he was serving as Solicitor General when Ginsburg's cases were first making their way through the Supreme Court in the early 1970s. Ginsburg immediately established herself as an intellectual force at the law school, and she was one of only two women to be admitted to the law review. During her second year of law school, Ruth's husband Marty, who was also at HLS, was diagnosed with testicular cancer. While managing and excelling in her own course load and taking care of her young daughter, Jane, Ruth made sure that Marty wouldn't fall behind by collecting notes from his classmates for all of his classes and typing them for him, and even typing his class papers as he dictated them to her. Marty graduated from law school a year before Ruth, and his cancer went into remission. She decided to keep the family together and to accompany him to New York to finish law school at Columbia Law for her third year. She graduated at the top of her class, but she could not get a single job offer. With the help of a favorite professor, she eventually landed a clerkship on the Southern District of New York. And then she spent a few years studying, of all things, Swedish civil procedure. And in 1963, she got a job at Rutgers School of Law, which is one of 14 tenure-track jobs open to female law professors at this time. And for many years at Rutgers, she focused on civil procedure. But cultural changes in the Vietnam War meant that more women were beginning to fill the law school classrooms in the 1960s. And in 1970, something really fateful happened. A few students came to their professor, Professor Ginsburg, and encouraged her to teach the first ever class on women in the law. She agreed, and what she accomplished next was astounding. It took her about one month to read every single federal decision and every law review article having to do with women in the law although she later joked that it wasn't as large as an accomplishment as it seemed because there were very few of both. That same year, in 1970, she co-founded the Women's Rights Law Reporter, which was the first law journal in the United States to focus exclusively on women's rights. And the next year, in 1971, she worked on a seminal brief in Reed vs. Reed, which is going to come up throughout this oral argument today in Frontiero. Reed versus Reed was the first time that the Supreme Court recognized that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment prohibited differential treatment based on sex. And the year after that, in 1972, Columbia Law School welcomed Ginsburg as a full professor. And that same year, because Ginsburg clearly doesn't sleep, she co-founded the ACLU Women's Rights Project. So in the space of just three years, beginning in 1970 with those students approaching her about teaching a class on women in the law, and when she's standing before the justices this day. Ginsburg has really taken the helm of the effort to recognize women's rights under the U.S. Constitution. This is all against the backdrop of the debate around the Equal Rights Amendment, which I'll describe in more detail later. But while that debate was raging in the halls of the U.S. Congress and in state legislatures, Ginsburg and the ACLU Women's Rights Project believed that the solution already existed in the U.S. Constitution. With the benefit of that background, it's time to listen what we're all here for, the tapes. Let's listen to Ginsburg's first shot as an oral advocate of convincing the Supreme Court that laws discriminating on the basis of sex should be held to a higher standard under the U.S. Constitution. Mrs. Ginsburg. <clears throat> Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. Amicus views this case as kin to Reed v. Reed, 404 U.S. The legislative judgment in both derives from the same stereotype. The man is, or should be, the independent partner in a marital unit. The woman, with an occasional exception, is dependent, sheltered from breadwinning experience. 
Appellees stated in answer to interrogatories in this case that they remained totally uninformed on the application of this stereotype to service families, that is, they do not know whether the proportion of wage-earning wives of servicemen is small, large, or middle-sized. What is known is that by employing the sex criterion, identically situated persons are treated differently. The married serviceman gets benefits for himself as well as his spouse, regardless of her income. The married servicewoman is denied medical care for her spouse and quarters allowance for herself as well as her spouse, even if, as in this case, she supplies over two-thirds the support of the marital unit. Okay, so I'm going to provide some quick historical context, and I'm going to focus on where we are when it comes to gender equality at this time in our country's history. I'm also going to break down this Reed versus Reed case that Ginsburg is relying on right off the bat. So when the Frontieros first filed their suit in Alabama, the Supreme Court had never declared unconstitutional a law that discriminated on the basis of sex. The last time the court had even spoken about women's role in American life was in this case Hoyt versus Florida in 1961. And there it wrote that women were at the center of home and family life in the course of upholding state laws exempting women from jury service. But between the day that the Frontieros filed their case in Alabama and the case actually reaching the Supreme Court, the court decided a very important predecessor case called Reed versus Reed, and it had Ginsburg's hands all over it. So Reed versus Reed is about another crazy discriminatory law that it's really hard to believe on modern years. This Idaho law specified that males must be preferred to females in appointing the administrators of estates. No joke, no exaggeration, that is the literal text of the law. Men must be preferred to females. So Sally Reed is an Idaho woman, and she's denied the right to administer her dead son's estate because she was a woman, and she challenged the law. The facts behind this case are truly devastating. Sally and Cecil Reed share custody of their adopted teenage son, Skip. And according to Sally, Cecil was an abusive husband and father who had deserted their family when Skip was quite young. After the divorce, Sally was to raise Skip during his tender years, but Cecil was awarded partial custody once Skip reached his teens. One weekend when Skip was visiting with Cecil, he was found dead in his father's basement after apparently shooting himself with Cecil's rifle. Skip left very few things behind. It was only a few dollars saved for college and a few personal items. But Idaho said that Cecil had to be the administrator of the state because males must be preferred to females. Unsurprisingly, Idaho defended the law. Honestly, I think Idaho's reasoning sucked. <laughs> Basically, they said this law is justified because of administrative convenience. Idaho argued that the law was a reasonable measure designed to reduce the workload on probate courts by eliminating one class of contests. You heard that right, people. It's convenient for probate courts just to default to men, and that is a justification for a law that says a man is automatically preferred to a female for something as important as administering a child's estate. And in their brief before the court, the government argued that the mandatory preference was reasonable because men are, as a rule, more conversant with business affairs than women. The government wrote that it is a matter of common knowledge that women are still not engaged in politics, the professions, business, or industry to the same extent that men are. Let's just take a moment to meditate on the fact that this is the 1970s. This is not ancient history, and this is a justification that the government made for a law in court. And the only reason that the government even thought about making this super thin justification for the law was that at this time, constitutional challenges of this nature were held to one of two standards. A really, really high standard that's called strict scrutiny, and a really, really low standard that's called rational basis review. So what's this really high standard? For a court to apply strict scrutiny in reviewing a statute, the legislature must either have passed a law that infringes upon a fundamental right or involves a suspect classification. Suspect classifications include race, national origin, religion, or alienage. An alienage classification would treat citizens and non-citizens differently. And so when a law discriminates along these lines, along race or national origin, for example, if that law is then challenged in court, 
in order for that law to be upheld in the face of that constitutional challenge, the legislature must have passed the law to further a compelling governmental interest and must have narrowly tailored the law to achieve that interest. This is a very high standard, and at the time the court has not held that laws distinguishing between men and women were a suspect class, or that they had warranted any additional scrutiny at all under the law. So therefore, that really, really low standard applied. And to pass rational basis review, the challenged law must just be rationally related to a legitimate government interest. So it's a much lower standard. So in Reed versus Reed, this important predecessor case to Frontiero, Ginsburg co-authors an amicus brief. Amicus is Latin for friend of the court, and it means that it's submitted by a party that's interested in the outcome of the case, but isn't, you know, on one side of the verses in the case. They're not representing an actual party. Read versus read amicus brief is awesome. Um, it's sometimes referred to as the grandmother brief, and it was the ACLU Women's Rights Project's debut in the Supreme Court. It really sets forth in clear and commanding terms their goal. Their goal was to prove that distinctions based on gender mandate the subordination of women to men without regard to individual capacity, and that these laws should be held to a higher standard under the U.S. Constitution. Remarkably, in Reed v. Reed, the Supreme Court rules for Sally Reed, and for the first time, the Supreme Court struck down a law discriminating on the basis of sex as unconstitutional. The court held that the government could not automatically assume that men were better equipped to manage an estate than women. The decision was unanimous, but it left open the question of what standards should apply to laws that discriminate on the basis of sex. And Ginsburg is trying to use this case, Frontiero, as a vehicle for the Supreme Court to make that hard decision. And if you listen closely, you'll hear Ginsburg argue that the Frontieros should win under the really, really low standard, the rational basis test that exists at this time, but the court should take this opportunity to raise the bar. For these reasons, Amicus believes that the sex-related means employed by Congress fails to meet the rationality standard. It does not have a fair and substantial relationship to the legislative objective so that all similarly circumstanced persons shall be treated alike. Nonetheless, Amicus urges the court to recognize in this case what it has in others, that it writes not only for this case and this day alone, but for this type of case. As is apparent from the decisions cited at pages 27 to 34 of our brief, in lower federal as well as state courts, the standard of review in sex discrimination cases is, to say the least, confused. A few courts have ranked sex as a suspect criterion. Others, including apparently the court below in this case, seem to regard the Reed decision as a direction to apply minimal scrutiny, and there are various shades between. The result is, that in many instances, the same or similar issues are decided differently depending upon the court's view of the stringency of review appropriate. To provide the guidance so badly needed, and because recognition is long overdue, Amicus urges the court to declare sex a suspect criterion. Okay, so I'm jumping in again to give a quick summary of what we just heard from Ginsburg and to provide some juicy details from behind the scenes of this oral argument. Ginsburg was pretty clear there, but I think she's really making two main arguments. First, even if this rational basis test applies, this statutory scheme should be struck down as unconstitutional because it lacks a rational basis. Administrative convenience is not enough. Second, she's urging the Supreme Court to declare sex a suspect criterion and to closely scrutinize laws that discriminate on the basis of sex. And although it got no airtime at oral argument, it's probably important for me to note that in two paragraphs of Ginsburg's brief, she put forth a third alternative, intermediate scrutiny, a middle ground between this strict scrutiny review and rational basis review which, spoiler alert, is going to become very important in this effort. Remember that here, Ginsburg isn't actually representing the Frontieros, but instead she's representing the ACLU Women's Rights Project as an amicus party. 
And I never know whether I should say amicus or amicus, and I hear both, so I'm going to be inconsistent. But just write ginsburgtapes at gmail.com if you think that there's a right answer that I should know about. But anyways, she's representing the ACLU Women's Rights Project, and that arrangement was not without controversy. The parties were represented by Joseph Levin, who's an attorney at the Southern Poverty Law Center, a legendary nonprofit legal advocacy group in the South. Levin is a local Alabama attorney who had actually lectured in a class that Joseph Frontiero, who's the husband in this case, took. Joseph Frontiero was in the Navy, but then he became a full-time college student, which is why we were having this case in the first place, because Sharon Frontiero, his wife, is bucking convention and being the primary breadwinner. Well, there is some mad drama between Levin and Ginsburg, and there are letters to prove it that are on file at the Library of Congress. Basically, Levin loses the case in front of a three-judge panel in Alabama, which I can't imagine is a big surprise. And then Levin contacts the ACLU for help in appealing the case to the Supreme Court. And the ACLU's Women's Rights Project is primed to take this case. But there are letters on file that show that Ginsburg thought that she and Levin would both represent the Frontieros, and that she would get to actually argue the case before the Supreme Court. And some of these letters get really heated. In one letter, Levin's assistant, who's a recent law school grad named Charles Abernathy, told Ginsburg, Given the nature of your suggestions up until now, I think our arguments are at a higher level of sophistication than you suggest, and that, of course, makes me a bit reticent in incorporating your suggestions into the brief. Whoa! Shots fired. And then, in October 1972, just one month before the briefs are due, Levin writes in a letter that while he would like advice from the ACLU, he would serve as the Frontiero's oral advocate in the Supreme Court. And the letter concludes with something that kind of reads like an ultimatum to me. It says that the Southern Poverty Law Center will handle this case with or without the ACLU. After receiving this letter, Ginsburg, who's characteristically very even-tempered, canceled their next meeting. And she wrote to Levin that he made her temperature rise and that if all he required were suggestions, he should consult the appropriate chapter of her book. Ultimately, Ginsburg decided that the ACLU would file an amicus brief, to which Levin consented, and he didn't consent to any other parties. But I think more interesting than this conflict around who's going to represent the Frontieros is the strategic differences between these two very smart lawyers. So basically every article and book that I've read on this relationship highlights the fact that Levin said in a letter that he wanted to keep a Nixonian low profile in the case. He wanted to win a very narrow victory for the Frontieros, and he thought that it was better to argue on those merits alone than to challenge the Burger Justice's preoccupation with decisions that have made a revolutionary impact on the courts. Chief Justice Burger had succeeded the very liberal Chief Justice Earl Warren in 1969, and he was a strict constructionist and an advocate for little re literal reading of the U.S. Constitution. So the Burger Court isn't exactly the prime candidate for a new interpretation of the Equal Protection Clause. Remember that the conservative, infamous former president, Richard Nixon, is president at this time, and he's in office from 1969 to 1974. Levin is taking the political temperature, both on the court and in the country, and he's angling to make a more conservative argument than Ginsburg. Levin's goal was to meet the Supreme Court where they're at, to meet them at this rational basis test, and to show that it wasn't actually administratively convenient to deny the dependents of female military service members automatic benefits that they afforded to the dependents of their male counterparts. Levin did this by rebutting the government's contention that their presumption of dependency was justified because women earn less than men, by introducing all sorts of statistics showing that civilian females make a yearly average income that's higher than that of the average military male. As to strict scrutiny, Levin didn't totally let that go, but he had a much more conservative approach than Ginsburg. He said strict scrutiny should apply here, but that a sex classification needn't always be suspect. He argued that strict scrutiny should apply to burdensome legislation, like the one at issue here, but not protective legislation. That is, laws that distinguish between men and women in order to protect women. I think a really good example of the type of protective legislation that he's getting at is in this case Mueller v. Oregon, which came down from the Supreme Court in 1908. And there, the Supreme Court upheld an Oregon law that placed a limitation on the number of hours that women could work in a day but it didn't place that limitation on men's hours. I actually put a picture of the laundromat that brought this case all the way to the Supreme Court on the Ginsburg-taped Instagram if anyone's interested in seeing it. 
but I think it's true that Levin would have categorized that legislation as protective, and he wouldn't have asked the court to apply strict scrutiny to that law at this time. And I think you can imagine what Ginsburg thought of this distinction between protective and burdensome legislation, and we'll definitely get into that a little bit more later. But at this point, I think it's important to emphasize that Ginsburg was prepared to argue strenuously for strict scrutiny. Ginsburg argued that this idea of administrative convenience as a justification for legislation is nothing more than a cover for the stereotypical notion that the husband, whatever his income, ought to be treated as breadwinner. And as you just heard, she's arguing for a higher standard in emphasizing the need for clarity in the standard for reviewing laws discriminating on the basis of sex. This is a really smart strategy on Ginsburg's part, and it's one that Supreme Court advocates use all the time today. This is the idea that the Supreme Court is the only body that can create true uniformity in the way that laws are interpreted in the United States. Ginsburg is playing on that role of the Supreme Court by explaining that after Reed, courts are inconsistently applying all sorts of different standards when they're entertaining constitutional challenges to laws that discriminate on the basis of sex. She's urging the Supreme Court to act and to create uniformity so we don't have a situation where a law that's challenged in Alabama and a law that's challenged in California or Tennessee or Ohio or Florida are all entertained under different standards. Sex, like race, is a visible, immutable characteristic bearing no necessary relationship to ability. Sex, like race, has been made the basis for unjustified or at least unproved assumptions concerning an individual's potential to perform or to contribute to society. But, appellees point out, that although the essential ingredient rendering a classification suspect is present, sex-based distinctions, unlike racial distinctions, do not have an especially disfavored constitutional history. It is clear that the core purpose of the 14th Amendment was to eliminate invidious racial discrimination. But why did the framers of the 14th Amendment regard racial discrimination as odious? Because a person's skin color bears no necessary relationship to ability. Similarly, as appellees concede, a person's sex bears no necessary relationship to ability. Moreover, national origin and alienage have been recognized as suspect classifications, although the newcomer to our shores was not the paramount concern of the nation when the 14th Amendment was adopted. Okay, so Ginsburg right now is talking about why sex should be treated as a suspect classification, like race, national origin, or alienage. She's pointing out a common thread between discrimination based on sex and discrimination based on race and later national origin and alienage. These characteristics bear no necessary relationship to ability. Or, in layman's terms, because you're a man or a woman, because you are black, white, Native American, Hispanic, Asian, or otherwise, because you are from the U.S. and a U.S. citizen or not, these characteristics, these dividing lines in our society, actually bear no relationship to your ability as a human being. And therefore, that laws that discriminate along those lines should be looked at closely by the courts. Ginsburg is also anticipating a key argument against her position. The objection being that the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment was enacted in order to protect discrimination based on race. This makes a lot of sense because the 14th Amendment was enacted, as everybody knows, after the Civil War. Ginsburg acknowledges that the core purpose of the 14th Amendment was to eliminate invidious racial discrimination. But she says that the newcomer to our shores was not of the paramount concern of the nation when the 14th Amendment was adopted. And yet the Supreme Court has extended strict scrutiny to national origin and alienage. This argument builds on the incredible work of Polly Murray, who Ginsburg honored by listening her on the brief along with Dorothy Kenyon and Ellen Durr in the Reed versus Reed case. Murray was so ahead of her time on race and civil rights issues, as well as on women's rights. And I don't have time to go into her incredible career right here, but I actually really recommend this New Yorker profile by Katherine Schultz called The Civil Rights Luminary You've Never Heard Of, which describes the way that Polly Murray was just so ahead of her time on these issues. And she was actually one of the very first to articulate the strategy that the ACLU Women's Rights Project is pursuing here. 
to recognize that the Equal Protection Clause extends to laws discriminating on the basis of sex. And in later years, Ginsburg maintained that laws discriminating on the basis of sex should receive heightened scrutiny by the courts, but she backed away from these heavy analogies to precedents on racial discrimination. She said, I became more sensitive to the distinctions, that all oppressed people are not oppressed in an identical way or to the same degree. But the main, and the, <clears throat> the main thrust of the argument against recognition as, of sex as a suspect criterion centers on two points. First, women are a majority. Second, legislative classification by sex does not, it is asserted, imply the inferiority of women. With respect to the numbers argument, the numerical majority was denied even the right to vote until 1920. Women today face discrimination in employment as pervasive and more subtle than discrimination encountered by minority groups. In vocational and higher education, women continue to face restrictive quotas no longer operative with respect to other population groups. Their absence is conspicuous in federal and state legislative, executive, and judicial chambers, in higher civil service positions, and in appointed posts in federal, state, and local government. Surely no one would suggest that race is not a suspect criterion in the District of Columbia because the black population here outnumbers the white. Moreover, as Mr. Justice Douglas has pointed out, most recently in Hadley against Alabama, 41 Law Week 3205, equal protection and due process of law apply to the majority as well as to the minorities. Do the sex classifications listed by appellees imply a judgment of inferiority? Even the court below suggested that they do. That court said it would be remiss if it failed to notice lurking in the background the subtle injury inflicted on service women, the indignity of being treated differently so many of them feel. Sex classifications do stigmatize when, as in Gossard against Cleary, 335 U.S., they exclude women from an occupation thought more appropriate to men. The sex criterion stigmatizes when it is used to limit hours of work for women only. Hours regulations of the kind involved in Muller against Oregon, though perhaps reasonable under turn-of-the-century conditions, today protect women from competing for extra remuneration, higher-paying jobs, promotions. The sex criterion stigmatizes when, as in Hoyt against Florida, 368 U.S., it assumes that all women are preoccupied with home and children and therefore should be spared the basic civic responsibility of serving on a jury. These distinctions have a common effect. They help keep woman in her place, a place inferior to that occupied by men in our society. Ginsburg is taking on the key counter-arguments to her position. First is this idea that women are a majority, and so the Equal Protection Clause should not apply to them. And I think Ginsburg just did a very effective job of pointing out why women still face pervasive discrimination in employment and in the professions, despite being a majority. And in her joint reply brief that she wrote with Levin, she pointed out that at the time there were zero women governors, zero women senators, only 14 women in the House, and less than 6% of state legislatures were women. So she anticipates and takes down that counter-argument to her position and moves along to the next one. It's this idea that laws discriminating on the basis of sex are actually intended to help women, to accord women with special status and special advantages. And this is an idea that lies behind so many discriminatory laws. It's this notion that women are lucky to be spared the squalor and pressures of the working world, of the real world. And this ideology has been termed benevolent sexism or romantic paternalism. And Ginsburg did a remarkable job taking this head-on in her brief. She argues that a differential treatment of male and female service members, 
rested on a foundation of myth and custom, which assumes that the male is the dominant partner in marriage, and which reinforces restrictive and outdated sex role stereotypes about married women and their participation in the workforce. She also relied on some English precedent. Blackstone, who's an English judge who had a major influence on the development of U.S. law, explained that the very being or existence of a woman was suspended during marriage, as any woman is under the protection and influence of her husband. And she's using this set of arguments to show that Sharon Frontiero, one of the two plaintiffs in this case, is fighting against a modern government-ordained version of Blackstone's laws that assumed that wives would automatically be dependent on their husbands and therefore deserving of benefits, while the reverse case was rare. Ginsburg's basic point is that it's okay for people to choose their position in life. It's okay for women to decide to stay at home. It's okay for men to decide to work. It's also okay, though, for the opposite to be true. And protective legislation, which is the type of legislation that Levin would not have asked the Supreme Court to extend strict scrutiny to, is precisely the type of legislation that serves to perpetuate these stereotypes. And I think that this divide between Levin and Ginsburg is the perfect segue to talk about the Equal Rights Amendment, or the ERA. Understanding the ERA is critical to even begin to understand what's going on in the minds of these justices and in the minds of the nation as Ginsburg's cases challenging laws distinguishing between men and women were coming up in the Supreme Court. So the day that Ginsburg is standing there before the court, January 17th, 1973, the Equal Rights Amendment looks extremely promising. The Equal Rights Amendment would have simply stated that equality of rights under the law shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of sex. In March of 1972, the Senate passed the ERA and sent it to the states for consideration. But it would need to be passed in three quarters of the states, or 38 states, in order to become an amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And at first, the law was extremely popular. Many states were eager to pass it, and within one year, in March of 1973, 30 states had ratified the amendment. And we'll discuss in more detail what happens in later episodes. But for now, suffice it to say that after 1973, support dramatically waned. The opposition movement to the ERA was extremely successful. It was led by a woman named Phyllis Schlafly, who was an outspoken opponent of the ERA and who organized the Stop the ERA campaign. STOP stood for Stop Taking Our Privileges. She and other conservative women argued that the ERA was an attack on traditional gender roles and designed for the benefit of young career women at the expense and security of older married women and housewives. These anti-feminists warned that the ERA would deny women privileges such as exemption from the military draft. I actually posted a video of Schlafly debating Betty Friedan over the Equal Rights Amendment on the Ginsburg Tapes Instagram, and you'll see that Schlafly goes right to the military draft. This makes sense because the Stop the ERA movement was motivated by exactly the same ideology that's at play in this case. That exact tension between Ginsburg and Levin over whether strict scrutiny should be extended to laws that are protective legislation and seem to benefit women, such as that law that limited the number of hours that women could work per day. And I think the Stop the ERA movement succeeded in making the mission of the Women's Rights Project, Equality for Women Under Law, seem radical. And it's something that makes a lot of sense through modern lens. The Stop the ERA movement was about traditional values, and traditional values couldn't see themselves in a movement once it started to be described as radical. The Equal Rights Amendment was initially extremely popular, and by 1977, the amendment received 35 of the necessary 38 state ratifications. But this Stop the ERA campaign was so successful, and it honestly blows my mind how much support for the ERA dramatically retreated after the law was so popular at the outset. But at one point, five state legislatures, Idaho, Kentucky, Nebraska, Tennessee, and South Dakota, all vote to revoke their ERA ratifications. And I don't think it's a surprise that the theoretical and ideological divide that ultimately led to the death knell of the ERA is exactly the same ideology of benevolent sexism that's at play at this case, and certainly the ERA is on the top of the mind of these justices as they're thinking through Ginsburg's arguments and what to do about this statutory scheme. Appellees recognize that there is doubt 
as to the contemporary validity of the theory that sex classifications do not brand the female sex as inferior. But they advocate a hold-the-line position by this court unless and until the Equal Rights Amendment comes into force. Absent the Equal Rights Amendment, appellees assert, no close scrutiny of sex-based classifications is warranted. This court should stand pat on legislation of the kind involved in this case, legislation making a distinction service women regard as the most gross inequity, the greatest irritant, and the most discriminatory provision relating to women in the, middle, in the military service. But this court has recognized that the notion of what constitutes equal protection does change proponents as well as opponents of the Equal Rights Amendment believe that clarification of the application of equal protection to the sex criterion is needed and should come from this court. Proponents believe that appropriate interpretation of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments would secure equal rights and responsibilities for men and women. But they also stressed that such interpretation was not yet discernible and in any event, the amendment would serve an important function in removing even the slightest doubt that equal rights for men and women is fundamental constitutional principle. In asking the court to declare sex a suspect criterion, Amicus urges a position forcibly stated in 1837 by Sarah Grimke, noted abolitionist and advocate of equal rights for men and women. She spoke not elegantly, but with unmistakable clarity. She said, I ask no favor for my sex. All I ask of our brethren is that they take their feet off our necks. In conclusion, Amicus joins appellants in requesting that this court reverse the judgment entered below and remand the case with instructions to grant the relief requested in appellant's complaint. I love the boldness of the decision to use this Grimke quote, and I also think it makes a sense because it's just so perfect. Ginsburg is clearly stating, I'm not here asking a favor for my sex. I'm asking to end legislation that operates to hold women back, to end a system of American law that is stifling our breath. Of Ginsburg's performance, Brenda Feagan, who's the co-founder of the Women's Rights Project and who was sitting next to her up at the bench, remarked that you could have heard a pin drop. And I think you can tell that on this recording. And you can also tell something else, something really remarkable. The justices did not ask Ginsburg a single question. That's extremely unusual. Oral arguments are usually peppered with questions from the justices, and oftentimes the oral advocate prepares not to get through even their introduction before being interrupted with a question. And even in this oral argument in Frontiero, the justices asked Levin and Huntington over 60 questions. Ginsburg and her husband Marty both thought that it was a bad sign. It seemed like the justices were just indifferent. One of the justices on the bench is Justice Blackman, and he actually keeps a journal where he often graded the oral advocates on their performance. And there are notes from this day where we can see that Justice Blackman gave Ginsburg a C-plus for her performance. He wrote, very precise female. And I feel like this could use a whole podcast in itself to unpack what led Justice Blackman to make this notation, biologically, religiously, psychologically, but his notes also include the letter J next to his name. His abbreviation for Jew. This is shocking to me, and I think it's a good reminder of that Ginsburg personally faced discrimination, not just on account of her gender, but also on account of her religion. All right, so our guy, Joseph Levin, argued on behalf of the Frontieros. And obviously he argued first because he was actually representing the parties and he was representing the parties as appellants. Those are the parties that lost below and that are now appealing their case up above. And like I said earlier, his argument was narrower than Ginsburg's. Levin focused on why the Frontieros should win under the rational basis standard. At the beginning of his argument, Levin really focused on proving that unequal distribution of military benefits didn't actually save the government time and money. In other words, that the statutory scheme was irrational. Eventually, Levin got to the central question. 
what's the appropriate standard of review? And here's a clip where Levin gets at the difference between his position and the ACLU Women's Rights Project's position. Amicus, American Civil Liberties Union, has proposed that the, and will argue, that the strict standard of suspect classification is appropriate for this case. Now we suggest, we as appellants suggest, that the strict standard uh, applicable in the chart, that, that, that the strict standard uh, here um, does, does not pose a choice between polar alternatives. So that's Levin's approach. It was intermediate. It was his Nixonian low profile that he wanted to keep. Um, he wasn't trying to push the justices where he didn't think that they were ready to go. So the government was defending the lower court's decision, and the government was represented by Assistant Solicitor General Samuel Huntington. He argued that the fact that most women are economically dependent on their husbands meant that this statutory scheme had a rational basis. Even when wives worked, they almost never made as much money as their husbands, so it's okay to make female military service members prove that point and make that extra showing. Mrs. Thurgood Marshall was very active during Huntington's oral argument, asking a lot of questions. And one of the many questions he asked Huntington was whether Congress had considered the difference between women and men's household contributions when they enacted this statute more than 20 years before this oral argument. But I am stating the legislative history other than there should be a distinction made between men and women in the armed services. Is there anything else in the legislative history on this statute other than that? Well, it's not even that. I mean, the statute speaks for itself on that point. The only thing in the legislative history is that by giving allowances for dependents, uh, you would compensate military personnel better so that you could compete with the uh, civilian sector of the economy. Now, I still say that, that, that it is apparent that Congress wrestled with the question of how do you determine who's a dependent, and that it was rational for them to determine that in the case of men, you assume that wives are dependent automatically because to treating the class of men as a whole, that is generally true. Treating the class of women, it is it is generally not true. On the whole general class of women and the whole general class of men, period. Period, right. But, I, but we submit that and there is a... a rational basis. We submit it's a rational basis. a rational basis. Yes. It is. We submit it is a rational basis because there are statistical differences between the two classes, which what justify... statistical differences did Congress consider? You said not. I said the legislative history doesn't indicate that they that they, they looked at it. The legislative history is fairly silent. I say you don't don't have to go very far to uh, find an underlying rationale here. I think that, that this is, is fairly apparent. I don't believe this is the type of case where you have to uh, strain your imagination to dream up some conceivable rationale behind the statute. I think the, the rationale, as I've indicated, is uh, is one which, uh, if it doesn't leap at you from the statute, is one which which is fairly apparent. I think you can really hear the irritation in Justice Thurgood Marshall's voice in that line of questioning. You have to get into Thurgood Marshall's head at this moment. He's the only justice on the Supreme Court who's not a white man. He's the first African-American Supreme Court justice. He built his career advocating for civil rights, and he even successfully argued Brown versus Board of Education before the Supreme Court, and he founded the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund. This is a man who's dedicated so much of his life and work to ending discrimination under law. And you can hear the irritation in his voice when he's asking the government a specific question and he's not getting an answer. His question is whether there's any legislative history supporting the government's contention that this statutory scheme was enacted to save the government time and money. And instead of answering the question, Huntington is saying you don't have to strain your imagination to understand the motivation behind the statute. Isn't it obvious? Women are dependent on men, and this statutory scheme reflects that assumption. As to the standard of review that should be applied to laws that discriminate on the basis of sex, 
Huntington argued that rational basis review allowed the courts to decide on a case-by-case basis which classifications in the law were based on physiological differences between the sexes, and which, on the other hand, had no rational basis. And he argued that this was an eminently reasonable standard. Well, in closing, let me uh, simply state that we have uh, no quarrel with the drive of many women to achieve equality by attacking statutes enacted in a different era that may reflect antiquated notions of the respective roles of the sexes. We submit, however, that the plea for across-the-board change, rather than case-by-case consideration, is better addressed to the legislatures rather than to the courts. This argument took place on January 17, 1973. The Supreme Court released its decision four months later in May. I won't bury the lead. Every justice but Rehnquist voted to strike down the law. But again, the court did not get the five votes to hold laws discriminating on the basis of sex to a higher standard. But we now have enough behind-the-scenes information to know just how excruciatingly close that vote was. So I'm first going to describe what happened at conference, and conference is what happens after the justices have already read all the legal briefs, listened to the oral advocates, and have decided how they want to vote and are going to share those votes with one another and decide who's going to write opinions. I'll then describe some interesting behind-the-scenes details about how the justices decided to cast their votes in this case. And then I'll quickly describe the justices' opinions. A feature of the judiciary that I really love is that whenever a judge reaches a decision, she has to set forth the rationale for that decision in writing. She has to explain what's the relevant facts and what's her reasoning behind reaching that particular decision. Okay, so let's start off with what happened at conference. Chief Justice Berger started off by stating his view that this case was different from Reed. The military has the full right to distinguish between men and women. I think he talked for a long time because Blackman's notes tell us that CJ keeps yapping. But after some discussions, the justices, all but Rehnquist, originally planned to do as they had in Reed, strike down the law, but maintain the rational basis standard. Make no statement about whether laws discriminating on the basis of sex should be held to a higher standard. Justice Berger delegated the opinion to Justice Douglas, the senior member of the majority, who then delegated it to Justice Brennan, who's one of the most liberal members of the court, and who Chief Justice Berger preferred not to write civil rights opinions. Justice Brennan quickly circulated an eight-page draft that called the case virtually identical to Reed and explained that the law was irrational and thus unconstitutional under the rational basis test. But that was not the end of that. Brennan noted in a cover memo to the court, that he felt the case would be an appropriate vehicle for us to recognize sex as a suspect criterion. And one of his clerks, Jeffrey Stone, pushed back against his draft. He argued with Justice Brennan that if the court was going to, in effect, subject this law to a higher standard of review and therefore strike it down, it should be honest about what it's doing and say so. Justice Brennan engaged his clerk in a debate, and then he gave Jeff the go-ahead to write the alternative draft. Upon seeing the draft, Justice Brennan slept on it, and the next morning he circulated it to the court. At the end of the day, Justice Brennan could not get five votes for his alternative draft, only four. He was joined by Justice Douglas, White, and Marshall. Unlike a majority decision, a plurality decision has limited weight. When a fragmented court decides a case and no single rationale explaining the result has five justices voting for it, the holding of the court may be viewed as the position taken by those members who concurred in the judgment on the narrowest grounds. By missing that fifth vote, there was no majority opinion that would be controlling on lower courts that set forth strict scrutiny review for laws discriminating on the basis of sex. The plurality agreed with Ginsburg that classifications based on sex were inherently suspect, and that the court should apply strict scrutiny when considering constitutional challenges to laws that discriminate on the basis of sex. The plurality also made clear that the government's interest in administrative convenience could not justify discriminatory practices. I think that Justice Brennan's opinion is really excellent, and it shows that he really understood the central points that Ginsburg and the ACLU Women's Rights Project were trying to make. He wrote that traditionally, sex discrimination was rationalized by an attitude of romantic paternalism, which in practical effect put women not on a pedestal but in a cage and in language that isn't invoked in cases today about women's equality. 
the plurality wrote, the sex characteristic frequently bears no relation to ability to perform or contribute to society. As a result, statutory distinctions between the sexes often have the effect of invidiously relegating an entire class of females to an inferior status without regard to actual capabilities of its individual members. As to administrative convenience, the plurality acknowledged that the government thought it was cheaper and easier to simply conclusively presume that the wives of male mil military service members were financially dependent on their husbands, while burdening female military service members with the task of establishing dependency. But they noted that the government offers no concrete evidence to support its view that such differential treatment saves the government any time or any money. In any case, the plurality wrote, our prior decisions make clear that although the efficacious administration of government programs is not without some importance, the Constitution recognizes higher values than speed and efficiency. And when we enter the realm of strict judicial scrutiny, there can be no doubt that administrative convenience is not a shibboleth, the mere recitation of which dictates constitutionality. This plurality opinion may not have been binding precedent, but it was foundational. And it will come up time and time again in Ginsburg's future arguments as she pushes forward seeking a higher standard for laws that discriminate on the basis of sex. This four-justice plurality missed that fifth vote so narrowly. Justice Potter Stewart filed a one-sentence concurrence. He agreed that the statutes in question work in invidious discrimination in violation of the Constitution. But behind that one-sentence concurrence, there was so much more. Justice Potter Stewart thought that this question would be resolved by the Equal Rights Amendment. He thought that progress should be iterative, slower, and was not ready for Brennan's opinion. He thought it went too far. This is consistent with Justice Potter Stewart's jurisprudence and personality. He was a judicial minimalist. And as the justices were conferring and sending memos to each other about this case, Justice Stewart told Brennan that if Brennan would honor his original vote in his first draft, Justice Stewart would promise to vote for strict scrutiny on the next sex discrimination case. But Justice Stewart thought it would be better for equality under law between men and women, for the ERA to pass, and for this decision to come from the political branches. And what a fateful, consequential decision that was. As we'll discuss in later episodes, the ERA never did pass, and the court never got five votes for strict scrutiny. Although Ginsburg didn't learn of what happened behind the scenes until Bob Woodward and Scott Armstrong published a book called The Brethren in 1979, there were actually some clues that the fifth vote was just barely missed in Powell's concurrence, which I'll discuss in a minute, where he wrote about the decision of the court, capital C. He criticized the decision of the court for preempting by judicial action a major political decision. The court is used to refer to a majority, not a plurality. And so that's some evidence that Justice Powell wrote his concurrence assuming that that fifth vote would have gone to the plurality. Justice Powell's concurrence was joined by Chief Justice Berger and Justice Blackmun. The three justices agreed that the statute was unconstitutional, but they stated that they would not go as far as to hold sex discrimination to the same standard as racial discrimination. And in memos between the justices, we can see that Powell thought Brennan's draft was too women's lib, too feminist for his liking. He wasn't prepared to sign on to a draft that used the language that I quoted earlier. This concurrence of three had two main points. The first was that there was no need to decide the level of scrutiny in this case because it was clear under Reed. The three justices wrote that the statutes drawing lines between the sexes alone necessarily involve the very kind of arbitrary legislative choice forbidden by the Constitution. The Powell concurrence expressed concern that by ruling women are a suspect class, the court was usurping the decision from the states in the ongoing debate over women's equality under law in the context of the ERA. Justice Powell wrote that by acting prematurely and unnecessarily, the court has assumed a decisional responsibility at the very time when state legislatures, functioning within the traditional democratic process, are debating the proposed amendment, the ERA. It seems to me that reaching out to preempt by judicial action a major political decision, which is currently in process of resolution, does not reflect appropriate respect for duly prescribed legislative processes. I think that's a really interesting and kind of remarkably direct recitation of a line of reasoning that comes up time and time again in the Supreme Court. 
when should the court act and when should the court wait for Congress to act? And I would be willing to bet that justices on all sides of the jurisprudential spectrum have adopted this perspective inconsistently and depending on the case. So the one dissenter in this case is Justice Rehnquist, who would go on to become the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. He wrote that he would affirm the reasoning of the lower court opinion. When asked about the case by the LA Times, Justice Rehnquist said, My wife became resigned long ago to the idea that she married a male chauvinist pig and my daughters never pay any attention to anything I do. I guess we can give him points for self-awareness. I don't know. And that's a wrap. We have so much more ground to cover. And in future episodes, you'll hear a lot more from other justices who will never again let Ginsburg get through an oral argument without peppering her with questions. The next argument is Kahn versus Shevin, the Palm Beach widow case that took Ginsburg by surprise and put a thorn in the side of Ginsburg and the ACLU Women's Rights Project's plans. If you have any questions in the meantime, shoot me an email at ginsburgtapes at gmail.com and I'll do my best to answer any questions on the show. You can also follow me at Ginsburg Tapes on Twitter and Instagram. It will probably come as no surprise that this project is a labor of love. I'm not affiliated with any production studio, but I'm researching, recording, editing, and producing this on early mornings and weekends from my apartment in Washington, D.C. I'd love to thank Michael Schoengold, Melissa Schub, Callie Schellenberg, Pavithra Mahesh, Jody Liu, and many others for supporting me, aka listening to me obsess, about this project for the past year. I'll see you next month, and in the meantime, I hope everyone has a wonderful new year.